Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Witt, and this is Margins, where we have conversations with change agents. I recently had a conversation with my friend and former Quad citizen, April Johnson, about diversity in institutions. April is the executive director of Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. We had so much to talk about that April is back this week to continue our conversation. April, it's so great to have you come back. We we dove into so many different areas of uh, diversity and inclusion within institutions and why it should be important to those institutions that uh, it seemed like it made a lot of sense to have a second conversation where we could end up talking a little bit more about working beyond those institutions or those institutions really embracing diversity and inclusion as central to their overall missions and really looking outward to try to grow and to be stronger and, and build stability. And one of the things that I always try to impress upon folks here at Augustana uh, at other institutions where I may do some work or do some speaking, I really talk to them about examining what they're doing when it comes to diversity and inclusion and equity in terms of are they having it as almost like a dessert to the meal where it's extra, it's optional, if we get to it, we'll get to it, or is it fundamental to the meal? Is it the salt? Is it something that is just part of everything that really kind of is important that if it's not paid attention to, you're not going to advance as an institution. Coming from the perspective of uh, a religious denomination, would you say that, you know, kind of making sure that diversity and inclusion is central to the mission of that type of organization would also be something that would be, you know, an imperative to really growing and strengthening that type of institution? Definitely, Chris. First, thanks for having me back. I'm really glad to be back here again. This is, this is, like home away from home, and so it's always good to come home. But it's also good to be with you, and I totally um, appreciate um, your framing of diversity and conclusion being central to the mission of, in my case, the church or the religious institution. Um, And the reason why I echo that is because, one, we have been in this particular mission around uh, becoming pro-reconciling and anti-racist for 20 years now. And uh, it was not well received initially. And yet that's the nature of any new or any shift in focus of a mission. But one of the things that we have done is that we have what we uh, say, we have stayed with it. We've stayed at the table, which is really, really difficult to do. Um, And having stayed at the table, we have benefited from now, instead of saying the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is a pro-reconciling, anti-racist church, and some of our congregations may or may not choose to be that. We have stay at the table long enough to where we have been able to have the conversation around what does it mean to be pro-reconciling and anti-racism. And I don't know if it's just longevity, um, but I think there have been enough people that have been um, uncomfortable and or comfortable with being uncomfortable to stay in this conversation that we have now made anti-racism training a part of all of our executive search processes And that goes down to director level. So not just uh, executive leadership, but we go from executive director to vice presidents to presidents. Um, And the the really good thing, and I I can, I I will claim this as a success of staying at the table, is uh, just this past July, we were the first um, 
religious communion to elect an African-American female as head of communion. So this is our second female uh, in succession. So our, our, our immediate past uh, general minister and president was the first female head of communion. And now we have the first African-American head of communion. I wholeheartedly know that is because we have stayed on the wall, we have stayed at the table, having the difficult conversation of what it means to become pro-reconciling and anti-racism, making that central to all the work that we do. It is not that the general church is pro-reconciling and anti-racism, but in our identity, outside the institution, we are pro-reconciling and anti-racist in all the awkward ways that it may, that it causes us to be. And we were successful in nominating and electing the first African-American female head of community, who is the Reverend Terry Hort Owens um, from Chicago and now from Indianapolis. So when we talk about the head of communion, we're talking about the, the highest-ranking highest uh, religious official in the church. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's huge. And I think that when you have that type of work going on, when you're talking about this fundamental transformation to being more welcoming, being more inclusive, really embracing ideas of diversity and inclusion and living it out, that that has benefits that reach far beyond the inner workings of the institution, that as that institution seeks stability, as it seeks to maybe grow, that it's been my experience that you're going to end up being able to grow a little bit more when you have the possibility of more different people coming to the table than to be exclusionary. There's always going to be a, a group of people who want to be exclusionary. There's going to be a group of people who really don't want to mix and mingle with people who are different than them. But that doesn't last as long as being open-minded and really being able to see the gifts of so many different people. And when we talk about a religious institution where you're really trying to do the work of God and you're trying to see God in each and every person, if they're part of your church or if they're just part of the community, and you talk about institutions of higher education where they're supposed to respect the minds, the intellects of all different sorts of people in both of those contexts. It seemed like the potential for growth and stability is really there in fully embracing diversity and inclusion in each and every part of the mission. When you talk about your church and having that highest ranking religious official be a woman of color, then that's really living it out. That's not just saying we're going to have a few trainings here, there. We're going to have an event. We're going to post something on our Facebook page. That's really living out saying, hey, we're open to people coming from these different um, backgrounds and bringing a certain level uh, of being dynamic uh, to the table within the institution. Have you seen, um, I guess, a, a change in kind of the temperature uh, in recent years when not only have you had those many years of moving in that direction, but now having her installed? I, I really believe so. And the interesting thing is I wish I could say, oh, it's the, the, the shift has been just the 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 holding our breath waiting to see who she is and what particularly policies and practices and ideas you talk about the marketplace of ideas that she's going to align herself with um who is she how you know is, is she with us or against us uh, but i so maybe that's part of it i really believe this i'm a spiritual person obviously there was a a spirit in the room when the vote was taken and the vote was announced 
there were uh, young people, thanks be to God, there were young people who were um, ushers who had to count the votes as we did. We are the church, but we are also an institution. So we did a paper ballot. Um, and there were young people counting those ballots who said they were crying every time they saw, yes, yes, yes. And so it's like, that's a spirit. You hear that spirit in my voice now. That's a spirit. And so that spirit is contagious. And what she said and what she continues to say is, even though she's a woman, this is not a one-man show. So this is not a one-person show. So great. We are very excited to celebrate that election. But we all own the implementation of that election. She will represent the Christian Church Disciples of Christ at the World Council of Churches. So she will represent us globally, but she won't be there speaking for what our particular interests are. She will be speaking on the interests of what global diversity and inclusion means as an individual who happens to have the responsibility of the head of communion for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And so if she has that responsibility, so does every member of the church. And so it it will continue to grow. And so the work that we do, like you said, is not just training. The work that we will be doing will be influenced by, we can now say we have that success. I think when we talked the last time, I talked about turning barriers into gateways. So now we have turned a barrier, a position that was only open to white males. We've turned a barrier into a gateway now, and now we all can walk through that gateway. We can all take this commitment to being inclusive outside the four walls of the church. And now we can begin to build relationships with other um, faith communities in our communities so that we can say, how can we work together to achieve our shared values? How can we work together instead of um, us saying, being focused inwardly on how First Christian Church of DeKalb, Illinois can work to be better inside, but how can First Christian Church work with the local mosque or the local synagogue to improve the conditions of their community? And I believe the example of having um, uh, Reverend Owens as our uh, head of communion just empowers us to move into the courageous work of changing, transforming communities. It feels like in any institution— when you start to have the weight of that leadership at the top bearing down on this work, the work really starts to get done. When you have, I mean, obviously you need the masses. You need everybody involved. You, you're going to need people who are those foot soldiers. But a lot of times people end up kind of figuring out what's important based on the messages they see coming from the top. But when you see people at the top who are saying, well, wait a minute, we can't really grow as an institution without embracing these things in each and everything that we do. You slowly but surely, you see people saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I want to hold on to my job. I want the church to grow. I want the college to grow. I want more students. I want whatever else. And people start to embrace that. And then they look around. And as you mentioned, doors are open. As opposed to looking around the community and seeing whatever issues need to be addressed, whatever opportunities are there, and then saying, well, who can I not work with in terms of saying, well, they're, they, they don't fit the mold of the past. They don't fit in this way or that way. 
It ends up being you kind of flip things and you're like, well, who are all the people I can work with? Oh, wow. I can be open minded. I can cross racial barriers, religious barriers. I can work with people at other colleges, other churches. I can work with all these people because we have this common goal. And that common goal is supported from the top down where, hey, I actually may get some credit. <laughs> I may actually be able to say this is fundamentally part of my work as opposed to it always being that extra, always being that dessert that maybe if we find time. So, I mean, I see a lot of power in, in having, you know, diversity and inclusion really be woven through central missions as opposed to what we saw in the past where that was progress to even discuss it at all. But we're past that point. We really mm -hmm. need to have it be central to what we do. I often say to our um, congregations uh, when I greet them um, on Sundays or whenever I'm with them, I always say to them tongue-in-cheek, it really is my goal to work myself out of a job because as the executive director or the minister of reconciliation for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, reconciliation belongs to the entirety of the church. The work of reconciliation is all of our work. And so, as you were saying, as we begin to uh, rehearse and learn a new narrative, then we begin to normalize the positive. So when we begin to normalize uh, how we got over, when we begin to normalize that what we saw as a barrier is no longer a barrier, that, yeah, there, there may be some naysayers, um, but they don't own the narrative. We own the narrative. And one of the things I, I like to always say in our training, we spend a lot of time on, you know, what is the, the catalyst or the, the central component of all the isms that we face, particularly in the United States. Our northern um, friends would say, yeah, you, the United States has more issues with isms than we do in Canada. That's another research. Yeah, but they're not free and clear. No, wait, I'm done like, You know, we definitely have issues here, but everybody else tries to act like we're the only ones. It's like, exactly. oh, not so fast. Right. <laughs> I've done training and research, and it's, it's a mirror. Uh, it's a total, it's a mirror. And when we look at, though, um, all the things that we've done wrong, then we normalize the narrative that we can't do better. And yet we know we can do better. So the reality is we need to use our power, which we talk about a lot in our trainings in terms of, yeah, a lot of the isms are centrally located in the way in which we use power. So we say one of the things that advances racism is the misuse of power. So my desire is to change, is to go ahead and give you that awareness, but to empower you to change the narrative to use your power for good. And so that's one of the ways in which I think we can expand our mission outside of our, our uh, proclivity to be inwardly focused and to really begin to be outwardly focused. And so we use our power for good. There's some things that I've heard people say, you know, we think we're all alike, but some of us are actually smarter than others of us. That's just reality. That's the truth. Some of us are smarter. Some of us have more money than others of us. Some of us are more creative. Some of us can do something. I always talk about, as African-American women, I talk about what uh, African-American women did with the innards of a pig. That's now, today, in the 21st century, a delicacy. But was the leftovers and were thrown out the back door for them to eat when they were not considered fully human. And so there's some of us that have those kind of skills that can take the inside you know, of a pig's intestine and make it into a global legacy. So... 
We need all of those gifts, though. We need the smart people and the rich people, and we need the creative cooks, and we need the creative um, uh, writers, and we need the, the folks that are artists. We need all of them to bring that energy to the work of racial and social justice. Uh, we need them to bring that energy to um, social justice within the academy. The reality is, though, if we keep normalizing a narrative that people who are other or differently abled um, are not entitled to the same access to those of us who have power, then we then look at power in a way that we always will misuse it. But if we learn to use our power for good, then we begin to empower everyone to bring all their gifts to the work that we know, particularly as a church, I can say, that work that continues the good news of Jesus Christ. And in, and in the case of our interfaith friends, that continues the creative process of what God has been doing in the world and continues to do in the world in this moment. And I mean, so many times we can miss out on the gifts that God has given so many different individuals if they're excluded from the process, if they're excluded from the institutions, if they're not respected fully, if they're not allowed to be their full selves. I always talk about this idea of how might it feel if you have to look in the mirror in the morning and strip away elements of your identity to actually go to work or to work at a church or to work at a college, wherever it's going to be, how, whatever capacity you're going to be in, are you really going to give your best? Are you going to give your all? And we see this happen so many different ways. I mean, we could go back to don't ask, don't tell in the armed forces. I mean, any kind of ways in which people aren't allowed to be their full selves and they really have to kind of suppress part of themselves, you're not getting their, the full gift that God has given them. When people have a certain level of comfort and they feel supported, they feel supported in whatever physical ability or disability they may be facing, if they feel supported in whatever their religious background or lack of religious background is, if they're supported in you know their, their level of intellect, whatever it is, that when people are able to find their place, they're able to find their niche, then we're going to get a whole lot of good productivity out of them when we talk about institutions, communities, or even a nation. But when we push people in the corners or we have people who have to only give half of themselves, we can't expect them to really produce in the way that, that we they're here to produce. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reason why they're prevailing, um, I would say, wrong narrative um, persists, is that we say that um, people who are other are a threat to our identity. People who are other are a threat to our culture. And so um, we tend to we tend to make them wrong. We tend to say they don't have uh, they should not have access to our meritocracy. They haven't earned the right. Um, we should say it in sales. You have to earn the right to speak to the CEO. Um, and reality is that's the, that's the wrong narrative, uh, because first off, meritocracy is. Um, is us grasping at what I call dust. There is no such thing as a meritocracy. We all, um, as children of God, have merit. And so the, the reality is our institutions have to function in some type of structure. But if that structure does not um, give 
license or give access to all the different gifts in the community. And that be from the church perspective, that is really our role is to give access. It's not just to be the best food pantry in the community, but it is to give access to people seeing and understanding themselves when they look in the mirror as fully human and fully entitled to all the gifts and graces that God has bestowed upon them. But what happens is we buy into a narrative and that narrative is repeated through our social media, through our our national news media that only these people, you know, should have access and only these people um, have the giftedness to do certain things. Then what happens is people people internalize that narrative and then that narrative becomes internalized and people don't um, darken the doors of our churches or darken the doors of our academic institutions because they don't think that they are worthy because they don't see themselves or hear about themselves. I remember reading a book, I think it was a Celestine Prophecy. And as I was reading it, I was like, everybody said this book is so good. And I can't really visualize the things that this author is describing. And then I caught on, caught on C-SPAN and the author was um um, being celebrated for winning book of the year or something in some category. And she said, the reason why I started writing is because I never saw myself in the books I read. And it opened my, it helped me totally understand why I couldn't figure out what they were talking about in this book. It was a good book as best I could, but if I couldn't connect to the imagery because the imagery did not look like any place I'd ever been or any place I was from, I couldn't connect to it. And so sometimes that then causes a person to have shame and to feel as if they need to, somehow adapt to a narrative that they could never own or they could never be a part of. And so what happens is, and we say this in the current movement, silence becomes violence. Mm-hmm. You know, either it becomes violence against ourselves or it becomes violence against the people that we're supposed to serve. And the reality is, and when I talk about using your power for good, as both academic institutions and as religious institutions, our job is to strengthen people to use their power for good. So our, I mean, we would never send our children off to school, you know, without letting them know that they can do anything they want to do and they can be the best student in that class but when they come home we just care that they're the best student in our house so why don't we say that as a church to the people we serve in their community and in, and it's going to be uncomfortable but that's you know our identity is not a threat because someone has a different identity than us I mean a lot of times I, I was listening to you when you said you were using the uh, example of, of like a food pantry mm-hmm. or a soup kitchen and a lot of times we end up having institutions that it could be a soup kitchen or a food pantry that's giving out food. You have a church that maybe is just giving out sermons on a Sunday. You have a college that's giving out coursework. But without affirmation of the people who are there, without really caring for the whole person and really affirming that you see that person, you sometimes could be doing more harm than good. That if this person is getting food, but they're being treated as a total charity case and not as a fellow member of a community who has hopes and wishes and dreams and who has a mind and an intellect, are you really strengthening that person? If somebody comes to your college and they take the classes, but you're not ever taking the time to recognize that they may come from a different background, that they may have concerns, they may that if we have, you know, an announcement of a travel ban and maybe they have family members who may be subjected to that, then maybe they're going to be in a tough spot. And you can't just say, well, you're just here to take 
classes. And I think that's one of the roles of these institutions when they start to embrace diversity and inclusion and think about ideas of equity in terms of everybody getting what they need to succeed. That's a form of affirmation. That's a form of looking at the whole person. And that's so important in terms of a role that any of these types of institutions can play in their community or in society as a whole, because many times people are faced with being overlooked. They're, they're faced with not really having their identity recognized, not really having them their full selves appreciated. And we can't allow that to happen in all these other places and also allow our institutions to do it. Mm -hmm. If we have any control within the institutions, we'd hope that they could be the leader mm -hmm. in changing that type of trend. Would you agree with that? Um, uh, absolutely. One of the things that I think about very often in the work that I do and in terms of equipping, so not just bringing awareness to racial and social justice, but equipping people to do racial and social justice is that, again, goes back to the narrative. And institutions, unfortunately, have had a historic proclivity toward advancing binary narratives. And so those narratives are mercy versus justice. Right. They are equity versus equality. So there's always a binary. Um, and the reality is that is the the, the um, academic institutions as well as the religious religious institutions have um, the privilege to to enter into people's lives in ways that are that are intimate and life giving so that we don't have to present a binary narrative. So when we talk about mercy, um, doing charity, um, providing food for the hungry, clothes for um, those who don't have clothes, uh, um, shelter for the homeless, um, when we talk about ministries of mercy and compassion, they're not absent of justice. So there may be some of us that have more giftedness toward working, being able to live in the um, intersection of the two where some of us can are very much more comfortable just doing mercy ministry. But it doesn't mean that if you do mercy ministry that there's something wrong with those who do ministries of justice. And so there's some folks that are radical activists and they can do justice ministry. Um, and they can do it well. They can bring awareness around where there are justice issues. Um, but we also have intersections of those. And there's sometimes there's it's a timing thing. We also be, have to be in a place where we can help people, usher people into um, the time of when mercy and justice intersect. Mm -hmm. But again, to present the narrative that there's mercy versus justice is the narrative that we have um we have incorrectly adopted, which is we, we can live in a, a world of both and, and particularly through institutions of um, higher education and um, religious institutions, we have the access to folks um, in ways that are intimate and life-giving that help us to do that. Likewise, uh, equity versus equality. Um, you don't have to be on either. There's some things that are important that we're equal. You know, um, we... Um, that we navigate the world in different types of currency. So um, oftentimes when we um, need to um, pay our bills or we need to buy groceries for our house, um, then there's, um, there's mi monetary currency that should be um, exact. A loaf of bread, at least this week, should always cost this much money. Um, but there's sometimes when a loaf of bread needs to be free. 
because everybody needs bread. That's equity. Mm-hmm. So it's not um, it's not equity versus equality. Like, well, why did that person get a fresh loaf of bread for free, but that person um, had to pay for it? And it's it's all about helping us understand that equity and equality can live in the same space. But it's about equipping people to understand where there is capacity. Again, use your capacity, your power for good. So those who cannot, then um, there's you know there's been this proliferation of folks who are like paying it forward. So you might be in the grocery store line. You know, it happens to me all the time. Someone might be in, in front of me. It's not because I'm so mercy oriented. It's because I'm trying to get out of the store. But you know, you might be five dollars shy of having cash to pay for your grocery bill. I'm probably going to give you the five bucks because I have the capacity at this juncture in my life to do that. Um, and there's been a proliferation of that, and we need to adopt that and normalize that narrative instead of normalizing a narrative that these people are sucking our economic system because they don't have enough money in the grocery line. And I think that this brings us back to this whole idea of understanding the history of our nation, understanding the history of communities, understanding the ways in which uh, people who may be different than us have been framed historically. Mm-hmm. That when we understand those types of things, then we can actually wrap our head around equity a little bit more. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about equity in terms of, let's say, law enforcement or the justice system, well, communities of color may actually need some proactive measures taken to be able to make for equity compared to their white brothers and sisters because of the history that we have in terms of um, interactions with law enforcement, mass incarceration, all of those types of things. And it's not something where somebody's getting something better than what you're getting. It's not something like that. It's ensuring equity. And when you know that history, you can actually swallow that a little bit better versus just looking at the here and now. Well, wait a minute. That community is predominantly black, and now they have you know a special liaison with uh, law enforcement, and they're trying to work on relations. Well, I live in a majority white community. Why don't we have a liaison? Mm-hmm hold up, wait a minute, let's look at history. Is there a need for that? And I mean, mm-hmm. we could go down the line right. for different communities, but if we start to encourage people to understand histories and to understand these dynamics, I think they can be a little bit more open-minded mm-hmm. when it comes to the measures that need to be taken to ensure equity. Because everybody's not going to get the same thing because everybody doesn't need the same thing at that right. moment in time. Mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of the gift that you offer through this um, this podcast, through this show, the gift that you offer as a faculty member at Augustana College, is that um, the college is equipped to be able to bring awareness um, as well as to um, educate um, people on, on the fact that equity is not an alternative goal to equality so that when we have the conversation with talking heads who are not completely educated around the issues around the question of black lives matter or versus all lives matter. The college can actually, an academic can actually host a forum where we can work through that without anyone falling into what I call the win-lose economics. Actually, as a, 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 a an ordained minister, I call it win-lose theology. But we, the narrative, again, I keep going back to the narrative, we um, have a narrative that if we say black lives matter, 
then we are denying that all lives matter. So if black lives win, then all lives must lose. And win, lose economics, win, lose um, mathematics, win, lose theology is oxymoronic. It's just not true in a in a world or in a society where we um, serve and model a God of abundance. So if we serve a God of abundance, then it's not possible that there's a such thing of economics that is absolute, that is win or lose. But what we tend to do is say, um, you can't say Black Lives Matter. And what we need to say back, particularly as institutions that provide education and awareness building, is that... We can't say Black Lives Matter if we don't continue to educate you on why Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. So we could have quick quirks back on what that means. I mean, my favorite quirk back is that, um, well, if all lives matter, then Black lives do matter. So that's a quick, but it doesn't equip anybody to do anything. But I just, mm-hmm. I, I got one up on you. But the reality is, if we do the education as you're talking about, we talk about our histories and it's like, well, Black lives do not always matter. Yeah. Simple as that, you know. And blue lives do matter. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the history of why we have to even invoke blue lives mattering. But let's stay focused on the issue of Black Lives Matter and why it's important that we have to um, bring awareness and shine the light on the fact that Black lives have not always mattered. And even in this very hour, Black lives do not matter. I mean, people have to have an understanding of their current surroundings and settings, and they need to have that understanding of their history. And when they have that, then the argument against something like Black Lives Matter goes away. Because like you said, I mean, you look at the history, you look at what's going on right now in terms of, you know, the the ridiculous disparity Mm -hmm. in in the loss of Black lives, in terms of the ways in which the, the nation doesn't look at the loss of black life, however that loss has come, as as a crisis, as an epidemic, um, that, you know, that really shows you, well, wait a minute, you know, this is a pretty lo- low bar just to say it matters, mm-hmm. but people need to say that. And then if people don't understand the history, then they don't see how sometimes people may look at a statement like a Blue Lives Matter and say, well, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. To say, well, when has there been a time where our nation hasn't revered Our law enforcement. When has there been a time? I mean, these are people who have chosen to go into a profession Mm -hmm. and they're they're nobly doing a profession. But that's a totally different conversation than people who happen to wake up in a certain skin Mm -hmm. and are treated a certain way. So I think that having that education component helps people to have kind of like common concepts Mm -hmm. and common understanding to have deeper conversations than if everybody's coming from different understandings Mm -hmm. and just arguing. But April, we could go on and on. Um, But I really appreciate you coming back and and talking again. We'll have to try to do it yet another time. But I thank you for all of your insights. And I really thank you for all of the work that you're doing now. And once again, I'd like to thank you for all you did for me early in my career and welcoming me here to Augustana and the Quad Cities. So once again, thanks for joining us on Margins. And uh, until next time, take care. All right. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) 
Thank you to my friend April Johnson, Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ for having another important conversation about diversity. And I want to thank my listeners. Your support of WVIK makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a gift to the station, visit WVIK.org to donate. And thanks to our producer, Lacey Scarmano. We'll be back soon.